Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his article, The Ethical Significance of Cost-Benefit Analysis in Business and the Professions, Robert Audi is going to first consider utilitarianism, which is you know, heavily dependent on cost-benefit analysis, and then look at a rival moral theory, what we typically call conscient, deontological ethics, which appears to have nothing in common with cost-benefit analysis, in part because Kant is often interpreted as saying that consequences are of no relevance whatsoever to the morality of an action that is being done or considered. What matters most is whether it's in accordance with duty and the motive by which the action is being done. But as Audi is going to argue, it's not quite so clear cut as that. And, you know, as a side note, if you think that really is the case for Kant, then you really ought to read not just the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals, in which Kant will talk about duties of beneficence, but also the other ethical works. The groundwork is merely an introduction to the metaphysics of morals, which includes the metaphysical elements of justice and the metaphysical elements of virtue. Kant has a number of other ethical works, and so a a well-read interpretation of Kant isn't going to fall into that trap. Now, that doesn't yet mean that cost-benefit analysis as such is going to be important from a Kantian perspective, but Audi is going to argue that it actually is. And just as a bit of review, in case people aren't completely up on their Immanuel Kant, so Kantian ethics, as he says, is going to focus on an overarching principle, the categorical imperative. And he's got two different names for what we usually call the universalization and respect for humanity. He's going to call them uh, universalizing maxim formulation and intrinsic end formulation. So the first one act as if the maxim of your action were to become through your will a universal law of nature. He says, I take the explicit use of this to require asking whether one can rationally, very important qualifier there, universalize one's maxim. So you can't just say, oh, I'm cool with everybody beating each other up all the time. Can you actually rationally universalize that? And Audi points out that in a certain respect, this could be seen as connected to the do unto others, you know, golden rule. If a thing is wrong, you cannot rationally will the principle on which it is based to be universal, because then you would think about how it would be to come out on the short side of the stick, right? Which actually seems to be considering consequences, doesn't it? It's not exactly what Kant is doing, but it's close enough, right? And he says that if we think about this universalizing maxim, well, that's going to rule out breaking promises, particularly breaking promises on the basis of a cost-benefit analysis, which a utilitarian might be, you know, attracted to doing. If breaking the promise would actually result in greater utility overall, greater benefits over harms or 
you know, better consequences overall for everybody concerned, well, then maybe you break the promise. And Cowan said, no, no, you can't break the promise because you're violating morality by doing so. You can't universalize breaking promises. And so, you know, this, this might be one militating against it. And then we have the intrinsic end formulation. Act in such a way that you always treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, never simply as a means, but always the same time as an end. And so he says that if you think about obligations of beneficence, obligations of beneficence, obligations to do good to other people, utilitarianism, one of the problems with it is it seemed to be saying you have to maximize your beneficence towards other people. So like if you're rich, you should be using those riches to benefit other people. If you're poor, okay, maybe it's time attention, stuff like that, rather than money. But you should always do the most that you can. And from a conscient perspective, I think Audi is quite correct in this. If you were to do that, you would be treating yourself merely as a means to other people's ends. And so you shouldn't do that. You should, in fact, be beneficent towards people, right? You shouldn't just say, screw everybody else. I'm not going to help anybody out. But you ought to have sort of limits on it so that you're not exhausting all of your own resources, burning yourself out, right? Treating yourself as just a utility maximizing thing rather than as a person yourself, right? So this would also seem to militate against cost benefit analysis. So Audi says, well, cost benefit analysis could be useful because we're going to have conflicts arising, right? There's going to be problems, for example, deciding just what principles governing the draft or the permissibility of prayer in public schools should be universalized and govern all humanity. That's not that big of a deal, I think, actually, because we could actually just think it through using Kant's categorical imperative. But what about conflicts between duties? says, what if we follow both principles that require promise keeping? Okay, so that's one thing, definitely in line with universalizing maxims, and principles that require us to render aid when we can. Also discussed by Kant in the groundwork, right? And then we find ourselves having to choose between keeping a promise to do something for A and helping B who has just broken his ankle. Right? Now, we've already made the promise in that case, right? so we're not making a lying promise. But we should keep the promises that we've actually made, shouldn't we? And then he says, how could cost-benefit analysis be relevant to these? And he says, you might think that it's not relevant at all to Kantian ethics, right? Kantianism is deontological, concerned with the qualities of acts. It's not consequentialist, does not derive rightness from goodness by providing a teleological, and you know, a consequence-based criterion of moral obligation. But he says, this ignores the point that there's no rational way to fulfill duties of beneficence, among others that are countenanced by Kantian ethics, without considering consequences of alternatives, right? If you have different ways of helping people out, then you should think about which one is likely to lead to better outcomes or less likely to have adverse side effect consequences, right? Which ones you can do most readily, most easily, right? This is pretty important. And Kant does think that you have duties of beneficence. 
So Kantian ethics is going to require us to consider the alternatives. And he, he points out another really interesting thing as well. So deontological ethics, as opposed to utilitarian ethics, is saying, listen, there's certain things you just can't do and be a moral person, right? There's certain things that are outlawed, you could say, from a moral perspective. That doesn't mean that people won't do them, but they're doing the wrong thing and doing them. Likewise, there's certain things you have to do, right? So how can cost-benefit analysis take these into account? Well, Audi gives you a suggestion here. He says, we can value or disvalue the performance of a given kind of act, right? Of this sort of action, irrespective of its consequences. So for example, if one option requires performing a disloyal action, we can assign it a negative value on that account alone. We're not worried about the consequences in that case, although we might also include those. We assign a value based on the kind of action that it is. So, you know, this seems like it could enter into the matrix of cost-benefit analysis, right? He says if something is absolutely prohibited by morality, then cost-benefit analysis would provide a mode of peremptory veto, assigning it sufficiently high negative value. An infinite one in the limiting case will render it a alternative that won't be chosen. So that, that looks like, you know, some compatibility there. And then he's got some really interesting remarks about probabilities, which play an important role in cost-benefit analysis. And he makes three key points. So one is uh, kind of obvious, right? Probabilities are absolutely going to be relevant to assessing consequences. So if we are going to take consequences into account as, you know, fully blown Kantian deontological ethics does have to do, then it says alternative actions, we have to look at, at how they're going to work. So if we're going to be beneficent to people, we, we, we have to think about whether it's likely that the course of action that we take is actually going to produce good effects, right? So that's important. But he goes on further and he says, even the aspects or the kinds of actions, this is the stuff that's really germane to Kantian ethics, even those have probabilities, at least in some cases. And so he gives an example saying that if you promise to help a friend's child, your best attempt may or may not actually constitute helping. So we want to think about probabilities in that. I mean, how could that enter in? Well, let's say you don't know much about children. The probability of your efforts to help them being successful are probably going to be a bit low because you might make mistakes in that. And then the third thing that he points out about probabilities, he says, they may be needed to represent epistemic uncertainty as well as what we think of as an unpredictability. For example, a whistleblower may not be quite sure that continuing on the job, despite being the loyal thing to do and making internal rectification possible, is acting righteously overall. So maybe we do want to assign probabilities within some sort of matrix of options and all the costs and benefits or, you know, the projected harms and payoffs, right? Now he goes on and he concludes this part of his, his essay by saying, to be sure Kant's emphasis on acts having moral worth only if performed by duty, we might infer that he intended consequences of acts to be irrelevant, but this would actually be unsound reasoning. 
Kant's insight is that what we ought to do is one thing and whether we're morally credit worthy for it, doing it is another. And he gives an example of a manager who having an employee's performance record as a justification, he fires the person. He does so from malice. Well, that's not doing it from duty. He was just like, I can't wait to fire that SOB. All right, I got it. Here, out of here, right? That's not praiseworthy. You would have to do it because it's the right thing to do and you realize that it's the right thing to do. And he's, you know, he goes on and he says that the note that the obligation of beneficence is unintelligible apart from considering consequences for the well-being of would-be beneficiaries. He does grant that for Kant, non-moral values will not be the only or main relevant kind. For example, protecting autonomy will be more important than promoting happiness, right? But that doesn't mean that happiness is irrelevant to moral decision-making. And so there is some scope, some limited scope, we could say, for cost-benefit analysis, even within the approach of Kantian deontological ethics. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.